0: This is God's Word. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, as You have promised, Your Word will not return in vain. And so we come to You asking that You would take it now. And as a seed in good soil, You would plant it, that it may produce 30, 60, 100-fold according to Your will. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to understand May Your Spirit work among us in this hour. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. While well, we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, for those who haven't been with us, this is a series to the book of Matthew, but that's we're in this section of Matthew right now in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm reminding us of different aspects of things each week. One of the, the challenges when you look at a smaller passage of text is that sometimes you can forget the bigger picture, so I'm, I'm throwing in these reminders to help me, to help you, To help us all remember part of what Jesus is doing. And in this, he is teaching, he's given instruction, but part of what he's doing is correcting. There were misunderstandings of the law that had crept up among the people in his day, where they were taking and using the law inappropriately, uh, using it to to bring harm, or using it to their own benefit, or using it to judge, or using it to feel self-righteous, or whatever, and as we hear that, we recognize the same in our own day, don't we? Uh, that we can fall into those same patterns of misusing Scripture. Remember that Jesus said, immediately preceding the section that we're in now, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So there, there's, there's a reason I want to point this out. And that is, I do not want us to do to the words of Jesus... What the rabbis and the Pharisees had been doing to the law that led to the need for this correction. And one of the things that they had been doing that we can be so tempted to do is to pick out one-liners from Scripture. To take one verse, to take one uh, part of a verse, and to use it like a zinger to, 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 to get that person or to, to, to justify why we feel righteous. Unbelievers... What's the most famous, most often quoted verse by unbelievers? Judge not, lest ye be judged. All right, I don't know where I heard that first. It's probably anecdotal. I don't know that anyone's taken the time scientifically to verify that that is the most common, commonly quoted uh, passage of Scripture. But we've all can testify from our own experience that this is one that unbelievers love to quote. Uh, in the, in the sense of what they're saying is kind of an adult version of the childish quip, you can't tell me what to do. That's, that's what people really mean when they say, judge not, lest ye be judged, is do not tell me what to do. And while in a toddler that may seem cute, parents, you know how short that, that lasts of how, how cute it is. Uh, we, we might think it's funny or cute in, in, in a toddler. Uh, We want them to be independent. You know, we want them to to, to grow and take on initiative. Uh, But as we get older, it becomes a serious mistake. And as we find out eventually, it can become a mortal mistake if we think that we are self-sufficient, that we are completely independent. Well, the people of Jesus' day were doing similar things to the law of God. And we've already seen some examples when, you know, we, we keep peeking forward. I know that we're going to get to those passages, but it's just helpful sometimes to see when Jesus elaborates more on something that he mentions very briefly in the Sermon on the Mount. So we, we looked ahead and we saw how Jesus went after the young Pharisees who had determined that they could take one part of the law and uh, regarding giving and then use that to dismiss the other part of the law that says honor your parents. So they would tell their parents, I can't help, I've already given You know, that money was designated somewhere else, totally dismissing one part of the law. Or what we saw last week where they had carved up the law in such a way that they could make oaths, that they could swear and make promises to people. If it was phrased in just the right way, they were kind of off the hook and they could lie. It was a non-binding oath if you swore by the temple. But it was a binding oath if you swore by the gold within the temple. It was that kind of thing that they were doing. Yet when we do this, when we take one line from Scripture... And there are times where we don't have time to quote a whole passage or multiple passages, but we need to be careful that multiple passages will back us up or the whole context will. What we do is we omit what the rest of Scripture has to say about the subject. We wouldn't want someone doing this with our own speech or our own writing. If someone opened your text messages in your phone today and read one line out of one series of text messages, could it be misunderstood? Could it be misinterpreted? Do we talk to, do we interact with some people differently than we interact with other people? Uh, Do we use phrases and have little sayings that we use with some friends that another friend might think, oh, that's offensive. You know, we, we all do. I can tell by the looks and the laughs on your faces. This is normal for us. We don't want things taken out of context. We shouldn't do the same thing to Scripture. We need to look at what all of Scripture has to say about a subject or a matter before we pick one particular verse to proof text from, so that we can better understand what we call the whole counsel of God. What does God have to say about this in in its entirety? That's what we're after. Well, in today's passage, there are a number of verses that you can probably already see where I'm going here, a number of verses that could easily be taken out and misused or misunderstood uh, if people haven't read any other part of Scripture, and, and you could walk away with a lot of confusion, if not guilt and shame. Uh, for example, a strict pacifist could use these verses to suggest that you should never resist anyone, even if they're going to harm you or a loved one. Someone who wants to take advantage of you legally could, could in the process, say, Well, you're a Christian? Well, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, you need not resist it. They could try and finagle, manipulate. What about those who want to exploit Christians when it comes to giving? If you've ever had a... This can happen particularly among family members if you have an unbelieving family member who asks you for money or for help. And you may for whatever reason decide that you can't. And they throw in your face so you call yourself a Christian. These verses can be misused. Applied inappropriately. That's not the only way that they can be misunderstood. They can also be misunderstood through accusation ourselves. We hear that voice inside that says, You haven't measured up. You aren't enough. Now, let me say this that anytime we hear command, anytime we see law in Scripture, that is the right reaction. You haven't measured up. None of us have. We've not done enough. But we also don't dismiss the fact that Christ has done for us what we couldn't do ourselves. And so we don't stay in that place. But yet some of us, either by personality or maybe because of our upbringing, tend to struggle more with shame and guilt. And so we look at a verse like this or these verses and think, I just checked out at the grocery store and they asked me if I wanted to round up. And I, I didn't do it this time. You know, am I, am I under condemnation? Yeah. By the way, if we gave every time they asked, I'm just going to let everybody off the hook here. We'd all be broke. They ask all the time now. Yeah. But we see this, the opportunities that are in front of us. What if, what if we didn't give that one time? What if we did hire a lawyer to, to defend our interests when a corporation came in and tried to take our family's land? Is that wrong? Is that sinful? The neighbor that keeps wanting to borrow the lawnmower, even, time, even though every time they return it, it's broken in some new place, and you finally decide, I can't afford to keep repairing my lawnmower. I have to say, no, wait, am I a Christian do I, do I really love Jesus? Do I really follow him? Even though it's our own voice inside of our head when we think this way, we know who's behind this. The great accuser who wants us to wallow in shame and guilt and struggle. Because what often happens is when shame and guilt get heaped on, we begin to doubt if we're even believers. So that's another way that we can mis, uh, misunderstand or, or, or misapply the words That are spoken here. Now, the words are not hard to understand. We read them, they're plainly clear to understand. But we also need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we need to understand that Jesus spoke in human terms, and He used things like hyperbole. He used hyperbole quite a bit. We've already seen this with the command to gouge out your eye, to cut off your hand. And we understand that that Jesus didn't literally mean that we were to maim ourselves but that we were to take sin so seriously that we were willing and, 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 and saw the need to remove things from our lives. Things that other people might be able to enjoy. Things that we enjoy. Things that we like in an effort to fight against sin. Giving up our rights to fight against sin. We have to be careful against sound bites. Little quotes, pieces of verses. Whether we use them to judge other people or whether we hear them as judging ourselves. And so let's unpack what we see here. First and foremost, that we might obey Christ. That we might not say, oh, this is hyperbole. We can just dismiss it. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't, that's, that's, that's too far. Uh, just like when we talk and I, I say something like, I made every effort to prepare this week to, to, to preach this sermon. What did I mean by that? No one thought that I gave up all sleep, all time with my family, all personal time, anything. That didn't go through your mind in one way when I said that. You, you, you heard clearly and understood that I simply worked hard on my sermon. Uh, hopefully I did. But we use hyperbole all the time, and we understand hyperbole all the time. So we don't need to go too far with this. We don't need to dismiss that Jesus isn't saying anything here. He is saying something, something very clear. The other thing is that we don't want to. Uh, we want to. We want to guard our hearts that we don't want to to go into the the realm of, of judging other people. That's uh, for some of us that can come so easily uh, to where we take verses and instead of thinking, "How is the Lord speaking to me? Where am I missing the mark on this issue?" We automatically automatically think about, I know so-and-so doesn't do that at all. I was with them when they checked out the line. They did not round up, you know. And we're just automatically thinking of the other people and how we can judge them. And then also that we might guard our hearts against living under inappropriate shame and guilt. Now, I want to say at the outset, so that we're all on the same page, what Jesus is dealing with here, what he's teaching against, is the idea of revenge, That Christians are not to live as vengeful people seeking revenge, but rather we are to trust God as judge. There are many reasons why we shouldn't seek revenge, that we shouldn't be vengeful people. Trusting God as judge is is clearly at the top of the list, I would think. Uh, But we might also think the fact of the example of Jesus. He did not do that, He did not seek vengeance. Uh, We might think of the fact that we have been saved by grace, we don't have a leg on which to stand. All that we have that is good has been given to us as a gift by God. Therefore, we shouldn't seek vengeance. We could think of a number of reasons, but let me start with what I think is, is significant. And that is what Paul says in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. While we see that, and let me just make a side comment on that. I always struggle when I read, but you will heap burning coals on his head. Because that doesn't sound very nice. Um, So it it kind of sounds the opposite of what he's trying to get at. Overcome evil with good, but you're heaping burning coals on his head. But notice what he's saying. You're doing good. What the burning coals that are being described there is their own condemnation from your doing good. You're not doing anything evil by feeding, by giving uh, water to drink. The goodness it becomes a, a, an act really of judgment upon them. So just to clarify that, you know, that's my own uh, misunderstanding there. Uh, what Jesus is saying here through, through Paul in this case, or, or he's quoting the Old Testament, is that the idea that we trust God as judge. And yet this doesn't mean that we give into a spirit of anarchy, that there's not supposed to be any sense of government, you know, that we just trust God and we, whatever happens, whatever happens with our family, whatever happens in our job, whatever happens in the, 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 the national government or, or local government, you know, we just, we just trust God as judge. We don't involve ourselves. We don't engage ourselves. I think that, that takes it too far. We look at Scripture, we see that there is a distinction between our role as citizens, those who have been saved by grace, citizens of Christ's kingdom, and the role of the government, the role of the civil authority. And when I say government, it could be civil government, it could be the government of the company you work for, or the governing authority, uh, that we even in our own families we could apply this, that there's a sense of government in our own families, whatever we're talking about. In other words, it's right for us to call 911 if someone's breaking in our house. That's the right thing to do. That's not what Jesus is speaking against here in this passage. What would be wrong is for us to seek vengeance on the person that was breaking into our home. You know, the police have them, they're arrested, they're going into the police car, and we're out there trying to yell and scream and throw things at them. That would be inappropriate as a believer. It is right for us to oppose injustice in the land, be it sexual manipulation of children, abortion, unjust lending, human trafficking. It is wrong for us to seek to do vengeful acts against the people who are involved in these matters of injustice. So we have to distinguish between the role as kingdom citizens, as individuals, and the role of the civil government. In other words, we can be against these things. We can be against the wrongdoing that we describe here. And yet we can support the government that would enact the laws, carry out the laws, bring about justice in those places. But we are not the enforcers. We're not the punishers. We understand that. We've all been through a civics course, but yet how does the world act? You know, a lot of people see themselves as the one who has to go out and get vengeance. Jesus is saying not so for his followers. So we live not vengefully against those who wrong us, but show mercy to them. A recent example that I heard on a podcast—this um, was a few months back, the world and everything in it. I always, you know, if I mention the podcast, I try and commend it to you. I find it really helpful if you choose to listen as a daily podcast that captures the news. But there was a, a recent episode where they interviewed a pastor in a uh, in a U.S. border town, south, southern border town, and in the in the interview, he admitted he was politically against the idea of open borders. He thought borders should be enforced. Uh, He didn't agree with that in any way. Uh, He was against it, wouldn't vote for it. But yet in his town where the Lord had placed him in the church in which he served, he saw needs around him every day. People who were hungry, people who needed shelter, people who needed clothing. And so he and his church responded to those needs, giving to those people who needed food, shelter, and clothing. That's what a Christian should look like. That we can be against something that is beyond our realm to control, and yet not take it, about, take it out on the people who are affected by it. We see the need in front of us and we respond. So we don't seek vengeance. We trust God with justice. And instead we show kindness as has been shown to us in Christ. As Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's begin looking now in verse 38. Jesus quotes the law as is his pattern now in this section. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. Yes, that is in Scripture. It is in the law. It is there in a number of places. Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, Deuteronomy 19-21. It is there in Scripture. And yet to us, in our modern day, it sounds a bit harsh. It's a law that would later be dubbed Lex Talionis. It's the idea that the judgment for a crime would fit the crime itself, would be equal to the crime itself. No more, no less. And while it may sound harsh to us today, an eye for an eye, a tooth for I mean, can you imagine if you busted out somebody's tooth and then they were like, okay, come over here. You know, that i mean, that just cringe, you know, I just I don't like teeth stuff anyway, but you know, it just sounds so harsh. It's not practiced literally because of this in most places. We prefer other penalties that are more humane. But the principle behind the law is really why. Because it protects both the offender and the victim. If the offender were a person of great power and wealth, if they had a lot of influence, if it was someone in a position governmentally that that could maybe get away with it, this law ensures that they don't. Or that they don't get a lesser sentence. In the same way for the person who has no power, no wealth, they're not taken advantage of. They're not given a greater sentence just because they lack power. It also protects the victim because it allows them to witness justice. That an equal justice was carried out and thus protect them from seeking vengeance. Today we prefer monetary fines. We see that or jail time. That's more common. But the law of God prescribed an eye for an eye. So why does Jesus now, in a sense, speak against it? Well, he's not speaking against the law itself. He's speaking against how the law was being carried out. Because in in the days of Jesus, people were taking this law to be carried out personally. There's a distinction in the civil law in the Old Testament from that which was given in the authority to those who ruled over or judged the people, those who had the authority to pass judgment, and those who were merely citizens. All of us, right? We recognize that same distinction. Paul talks about it in Romans as well. We'll look at that in a minute. But the idea is that it is not prescribed for people to carry out personally. We have to remind ourselves that Israel was not only the people of God, a designation for the people of God, but Israel was also a nation state. And God had given them a civil law, a civil law that has been fulfilled in Christ that we're no longer under because the, the church is not a nation state. The church has no borders. So with that, we have to also acknowledge that all, of it, all Israel was not true Israel. So every member, every citizen of the nation of Israel was not a part of the kingdom. That Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Abraham believed God, trusted God. It was credited to him as righteousness. No one was ever saved by being born a Jew or born in the nation of Israel. That's the distinction that I'm making here. So the moral commands, then, of the moral law, why do we still talk about those? If if Jesus has fulfilled all of the law, why do we still talk about the moral law? Well, the moral law is universal and eternal because it declares who God is. It declares his character, and it declares also how we are to live. It's also really helpful in showing us how we don't measure up, too. Those are the three uses of it. Uh, But the moral law still serves that purpose because in this life, until Christ returns or we're called home... We still need help in countering sin, don't we? Uh, We still need help in identifying sin. And so the moral law is still useful and good for us. The civil law, however, even though it's not applied in in its use of, of, of governing our lives, still contains a lot of wisdom. Uh, We can't dismiss it entirely. Paul would later write, as I mentioned in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so the purposes, some of the purposes of the civil government then enforce the law to bring about judgment, and then by doing so deter evil. Why do we always slow down when we see the police car, even if we're not speeding Because of our guilty hearts. We know there's a fear there. We don't want our insurance. I mean our insurance rates are already going through the roof. Right? We don't need any help in that. We don't want a speeding ticket. And so we slow down. So the principle then of an eye for an eye. Given in the Old Testament. Was never intended for individual practice. But only for the governing power. In fact, we see a number of passages in the Old Testament that prohibit revenge. These are the passages that the people in Jesus' day were neglecting. They were forgetting. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There it is. Leviticus 19.80 Proverbs 20.22 Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. So the people of Jesus' day were doing that. They were seeking revenge. They were getting people back for the smallest of things and just saying, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You, know? you grab the last good tomato in the grocery aisle right, right as I was going to get it, yeah, I'll get you back. You know? And it was, it was just multiplied in everyday life. You dig ditches that take the water from my crops, I'm going to sabotage yours. You build the wall that blocks the sunlight to my vegetable garden, I'm going to sabotage your vegetable garden. Now today we don't deal with the agricultural things as much. Maybe some of us do. Um, But we do it in more subtle ways. Social media is filled with this, isn't it? People making their digs, saying what they would never say face to face, getting people back by their little quips. We might do it in going after a neighbor who has bothered us by something they're doing, or a coworker who always seems to get out of work, and we make our little uh, digs and, 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 and quips about what they're doing. Whatever the example is, the problem is in seeking revenge in our own sense of justice. Now we would all agree that this is a very human response, right? You don't have to teach kids to do this. If you're unsure of this or if you're unsure, unsure that we're, we're born in sin, sign up for nursery duty because it doesn't take long to see this even in young children. Uh, the eye for the eye, the, the revenge, the, the the tactic, we, we do this. It's in, in one sense, it's a very human response, but it's a very sinful human response. This is why Jesus is speaking against it. He says, as his followers, we are to be different. He begins then explaining with his But I say to you in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Now that verse by itself, do not resist the one who is evil, sounds alarming. What? Wait, what about all the other passages that speak about like resist the evil one, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Or the other passages that it's implied that we would resist evil? If you think about the Old Testament is... Full of examples where where God tells His people to defend the powerless. To to rescue the oppressed. How do you do that if you don't resist one who is evil? Someone intends to break into your home. What are you going to do? You're going to stop them. You don't want them to harm your family. How do we understand this verse? Well, as I've said, there is a hyperbolic level to this. Jesus is certainly trying to get our attention But what he's going after here is an attitude, a matter of the heart, how we respond to people. As we drive around and walk around and we go about our daily lives, are we on edge? Just kind of waiting to be offended so that we can snap back? I think a lot of people are nowadays. I find myself, if I don't take my thoughts captive, if I go into cruise control, I can fall into this pattern really quickly. You guys know especially where... Driving right, You know, you get out there, the road is mine, you're in my way, why are you in my way, why aren't you getting out of my way? That attitude that, that creeps up in us where we become so self-centered, we think the world revolves around us. Jesus is going after that kind of heart, that kind of attitude, where we are looking to get even all the time. We, don't, we are not, rather, to possess a retaliatory posture when we're wronged. Yet there is a difference, though, from being a doormat. We're not called to be doormats. We're not called to not have an opinion, to not say anything, to never stand up, to never resist. If someone is doing something wrong, we can resist it. There are a number of ways to resist it. We would call 911 if someone was breaking in our home. Completely appropriate. We don't have to lay down and let people walk all over us. But what we have to guard against is the mentality of an eye for an eye. Or we see it as appropriate for us to take the retaliatory action. There's a difference from standing up to something, to calling something wrong, reporting something in the case of a 911 call, and being retaliatory or vengeful. Now, given what Jesus would later teach on a number of occasions about the uh, persecution that his followers would receive because they followed him... I think there's at least some argument made for this is what Jesus was, was beginning to get at. In Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or John 15.20, Remember the word that I said to you a servants not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep also yours. But all these things they will do to you on my account because they do not know him. Who sent me. So Jesus told his disciples, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to face insult, you're going to face danger. All of the examples that follow uh, in this list that he's now about to explain involve insult. And so while it wouldn't necessarily only include those things, I think it certainly does at least include those things. And he gives, as I mentioned, these four examples to illustrate his teaching. The first, probably the most well-known, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, if you think about most people are right-handed, so if you slap someone else, turn to your person next to you and try No, I'm kidding. Um, if you were to turn to someone and slap them on, sisters, <laughs> on what cheek would you slap them? It would be their left, right? So what's this right-handed, right-cheek right slap? Well, it's a back-handed slap. Which even to this day is an insult in Middle Eastern culture. So this is an insulting slap. It's a backhanded slap. It's something given not only to sting you, but to to make a statement. This is not about just scrapping. This is not about just fighting. It is intended to insult. And so the message that Jesus is delivering to his hearers is, if you are insulted, do not insult back. It's very simple. If you are insulted, do not insult back. Now, that happens at the grocery store, but that also happens in the home. And that may be the hardest place to practice this. If you are insulted, do not insult back. It only adds more evil to the evil that has already been dealt out. Instead, remember the words of 1 Peter 4.14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The second example involves a legal matter. If anyone should sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, we read this in our own setting, and we don't really get the significance of what Jesus is saying here. It certainly would have been an insult, right, to lose a piece of clothing in a lawsuit. That seems pretty uh, insulting and embarrassing. Uh, To understand this, the tunic was the undergarment. So this would be like losing your underwear in in a lawsuit. That's maybe a little more insulting. Uh, Today we use the euphemism, someone loses their shirt. If they make a bad investment or they make a bad bet or if they maybe lost a lawsuit, we would say they lost their shirt if they lost everything. Well, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we, we read the instruction that was given to the people of God at this point, that in court they could give up their tunic as a pledge for payment. Or if they failed to pay, the person could take them to court and they would have to give up their tunic. Uh, They would not be allowed to be sued for their cloak, their outer garment, their coat. And the reason for this is because that was their, uh, their, their clothing, their warmth. It would often be used as their blanket. It would put someone in danger potentially if they didn't have that warmth. So they were never allowed to sue for the cloak, only for the tunic. And Jesus is saying here, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak. Give them the shirt off your back. Give them what is rightfully yours. Give up what is rightfully yours. Again, it happens at work, but it also happens in the home. Give up what is rightfully yours. Dan Doriani says, Jesus says that if someone attempts to take our tunic, which may be his prerogative, give him the robe, though it is never his prerogative. Again, we must recognize the hyperbole. Jesus is not commanding us to give away everything until we're left cold and naked. He is commanding us not to devote ourselves to defending our honor and avenging all affronts. So it's not just about clothing. I mean, maybe at some point it is. Someone needs the shirt off our back. But we understand that even when we say that saying in English, it's still, uh, you know, it's a euphemism for something else. It doesn't mean literally taking the shirt off our back. It means giving up what is rightfully ours. Giving maybe to the last, maybe giving to, to the end. Giving and giving and giving. Paul would write to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In the third example, we read, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this goes back to the practice of the Romans in the days of Jesus. They were the occupying force. Uh, they had come in, they would in- invaded the land, and now ruled there in place of uh, the, the Israeli or, or, or Jewish government. Uh, and as a result of this, their soldiers could command you to carry their belongings, carry their equipment, for up to one mile. That was Roman law. So you can imagine, you know, I said all of these things were an insult. Imagine having an occupying force in your country. Not only have they come in and they invaded your land, they brought with them their own laws, their own restrictions, their own rules that you now have to live under. They're taxing you. They're taking some of your money to go back to Rome to support the Roman efforts to take over more of the world. And on top of all of that, the Roman soldier could look at you and bark out, carry my stuff up to one mile. So there's this insult as well. We see the the, the practice enacted at the crucifixion of Jesus when Simon and Cyrene was was ordered to carry the crossbeam of Jesus up to Calvary. So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, he's instructing us that when we are oppressed, when we are mistreated, we are committed to go the extra mile. Going the extra mile. Even if we recognize the hyperbole in this, we can't dismiss it entirely. We understand that just from our own own English statement, go the extra mile. What a testimony it can be to others when everyone else is seeking revenge or seeking to only go exactly the thousand paces that they measured the mile by. uh, That you would then, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, as one who recognizes you've been forgiven your sins that the love of God has been poured out on you, that you would then, in service to the king, go the extra mile. It's about an attitude, a heart that's reflected in our response. Romans 15, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The final example is then, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think this is possibly the hardest to apply because we don't see the insult in it necessarily. But if you have ever been approached by someone, and I, again, I think this happens a lot of time with family members or people who are close friends who, who really kind of want to manipulate. And they maybe have asked you for something that you can't do or are unwilling to do for whatever reason, and they say, you call yourself a Christian. And then you feel the insult, right? The insult that, wait, you know, I have to do this? I'm compelled to do this? Even though I don't think it's wise or good or the last six times I gave them money, they went out and wasted it? The law of God was clear. His people were to be a generous people. We see this throughout the Old Testament. They were to be uh, generous with their possessions, uh, in their giving. They were not to lend with interest to to their brothers. Uh, They were to help those who were in need. They were to see this. All this is built into the law. But what Jesus is correcting here is what we might call legalistic stinginess. You know, the notion of I already gave it the office. I've done my part. And he's saying, go the extra mile. Be willing to give the shirt off your back. Keep going. Now, it doesn't rule out being wise as serpents. As we seek to be gentle as doves, there are times where uh, it it may not be good to help a particular person in a particular situation because you know what they're going to do with it. It takes a lot of wisdom. It it, it does no good to give away all that we have so that we become the one in need, right? If we were to give away everything, uh, and then now we need to be out begging and asking for help. That does no one any good. Uh, It can be harmful at times. Uh, We can create dependency if we give and give and give in a way that is unwise. So great wisdom is needed. I'm not discounting any of that. But for most of us, our problem is not on the wisdom side. Our problem is on the stingy side, if we're honest. I mean, this, that's just where, where we struggle. We are not to call wise what is simply stinginess. It's not just about our money or our resources. Oftentimes, it's about our time. I just don't have time to be bothered by one more request. don't have the energy I think it can also be about greed. Has this ever cropped up in your heart? Hey, I worked hard for my stuff and nobody helped me. The call by Jesus is that we would spend our lives. That we would give away what He has entrusted to us. In a way that's stewarded well, but that our lives are not given to us. We were not saved to be hoarders. We've been saved to reflect the, 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 the lavish grace that has been poured out on us. We should be lavish with our lives. That's what he's getting at. Of course, the weight of all of this as we read it is heavy. We, we, we hear these words of Jesus and we think, Turn the other cheek every time. Give the shirt off my back every time. Go the extra mile every time. Give every time. It's heavy not because it's a bad commandment. It's heavy because we can't measure up. We don't measure up, but we can't measure up. I mean, think about this. If we tried to take all of this literally, we wouldn't sleep, we wouldn't eat, we wouldn't talk to anybody. We would literally drive ourselves into the grave trying to follow this. We can't measure up. And the good one of the good uses of the law is to help us to see that. That we need a Savior. We need someone who has turned the other cheek. Who has given and given and given and given. He was slapped. He was spit upon. He was cursed at and beaten. Because of my sin and your sin. The prophet foretold of this, writing, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities, as we read this morning, literally giving away his life to save us while we were his enemies. And since our salvation is then by grace alone, we have no claim over our lives. We've been bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to our Savior. Everything that we have, everything that we possess, not just our physical stuff, but but, but our our, our skills, our gifts, all of our resources, our time. It's all been bought by our Savior. It belongs to Him. We are to steward it as unto Him. So often when we think of investments, we think of growing, building, which is a good model for investments. I think that's a good idea. You kind of want your investments to go that direction. But when it comes to kingdom living, at least from an earthly standpoint, it ought to be a lot about spending. Basically, that we're, that we're shooting to zero out the checkbook uh, you know, when, when we check out of here. And again, I don't mean that literally just about money. There's a proverb that says it's a good thing to leave an inheritance to your children. So don't hear that. I'm talking about our lives. That we're spending our lives. That we're not wasting our lives. That we're not frittering away our time or excusing away our time and our energy by saying, I just don't have any more strength in me to give. When Jesus calls us to give and to give and to give. The attitude that he is confronting is that of selfish revenge, self-centered living, the living for self above all things. That's how most of the world lives. That's how the world continually suggests that we should be living. But our God calls us to consider the needs of others more important than our own. It sounds and feels impossible. And it is. It's impossible. It's beyond our grasp. So what do we do? Well, just like we did when we came to Christ in salvation, we look to Christ yet again. Every day, looking to Christ, looking to the one, fixing our eyes on him who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. In keeping the law so that we might be credited to match, to meet the standard of holiness that was required for us. That he died to atone for our sins, to forgive us, to remove that stain of guilt that we couldn't remove for ourselves. Let us look up to him, to fix our eyes on him, especially as we come to the table now, so that we might then have this mind among ourselves, which was also ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, lift our eyes up now to see Christ. We confess that we have not measured up. We failed miserably. We confess that we cannot measure up. We're inadequate. And so we confess Christ. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our sufficiency. Christ is the Giver who gave to us and enables us to give now, to turn the other cheek, to give the shirt off our back, to walk the extra mile, to give when we are asked again and again and again. Not that we could ever do any of this in our own power, but only through Christ. So may we not fix our eyes on using these verses to judge others. May we not fix our eyes on using these verses to shame ourselves. But may we hear your words as they were intended. To see our need for a Savior. Who then, by your gift of the Spirit now, enables us to actually live these verses out. To lay our, our own interests down, our own needs down for the sake of others. To consider others better than ourselves. How could we ever do that in our own strength? It's only in Christ. And so we thank you today. And we ask that you would continue your sanctifying work. To enable us to live this out for your namesake and for your glory. Keep our eyes fixed on Christ, Lord. It's so easy for us to become distracted, to forget, to think that we can or should do it in our own power. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we pray in his mighty name. Amen.